Song number 214, Jeff has asked that we mark that. And may I also say at the outset of the lesson tonight, if you would keep those Vacation Bible Schools in prayer, of which I made mention this morning, uh, that Vacation Bible School at the Montrose Congregation Thursday evening especially, and also tomorrow evening at the Spencer Congregation over in Van Buren County, that our journeys to those locations might be safe both there and back, and also that the lessons might be most helpful and most beneficial to those congregations. It is true that as we're invited from time to time to, to attend those places, the Pippin congregation is lifted highly, and we certainly enjoy being able to be representative of a congregation whom we appreciate, love, and enjoy like the congregation that meets here. The lesson before us tonight continues our study of the 1 Corinthian letter. As we have noted already at this point in our studies throughout that book, a whole host of topics a whole host of considerations have already come before us. The Corinthian church faced certainly a multitude of problems and issues, and among them were everything from divisions, what to do about public sin in the church, characteristics of marriage and divorce, circumstances relating to whether or not one could partake of the food that had been offered to an idol. All of that we've seen up through the first eight chapters. Even in chapter 9, the remarkable recollection about the characteristic itself of a preacher. Can a congregation support a preacher? It is tonight as we come to the next two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, that we find even more considerations, more matters of which the Corinthian congregation was a bit confused and things that have in it truth that can still be very helpful and very moving for you and me today. It is true as we come to this particular lesson, I did divide it into three sections. The first of which is entitled Examples. The second of which is entitled Customs. The third of which I entitled Abuses. We shall look at those in order and doing so first brings us to this topic of examples. The first several verses of the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians highlight before us a powerful set of ideas and teachings. Teachings that on first reading may appear to be unusual, almost strange. But then when one reaches verses 10 and 11, it's easy then to see what Paul's point is. And it's also rather penetrating to you and to me to recognize the impetus and the obligation given to us in them. Beginning in verse number 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, "...moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant." how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And beginning at that point, Paul proceeds to list a number of issues of which the children of Israel were the recipients. The fact is, as I've listed them there, Paul says they all were under the, under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And furthermore, they all ate of the same spiritual meat. And furthermore, they drank of the same spiritual drink. All five of those things are listed in each instance. The word all highlights that Paul's point was the children of Israel, in terms of the total congregation of that number, were blessed by the opportunities, blessings, and privileges with which God had afforded them. In particular, as you'll notice, some of them, we can even quickly highlight much of the appreciation to be found in them. First of all, he begins by saying they were all under the cloud. 
We may recall that God blessed them with the powerful might and wonder of that cloudy pillar by day that directed their movements through the wilderness so that they would depart when God commanded, they would rest when God commanded, and they would always move in the way He had ordered so that they would not get lost. They would not fall into quicksands or other dangerous pits or locations. You also notice, he went on to say, they passed through the sea. The leadership of the God of heaven allowed them by marvelous miracle to pass through the Red Sea when it was openly parted left and right. We recall that as this mighty host of the children of Israel passed through that sea, they did so, of course, fleeing the chasing Egyptians behind them. They, of course, were preserved, whereas the Egyptians, upon their entrance into that sea, the waters were removed from their station, and they, of course, were drowned. You'll notice in the third place, Paul describes that as the case like this. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here's one of those interesting descriptions of baptism. For we notice even the children of Israel gave in themselves... They, in fact, subjected themselves to a type of baptism. Notice the last two. They ate of the spiritual meat. God blessed them six days a week with manna, provided miraculously as the dew came throughout the course of the night and early morning hours. And as they partook of that manna, Jesus Himself would say in John chapter 6 that that was the meat spiritually provided by God for them. Finally, mention is made of water. They drank of that spiritual drink. As we reflect on that liquid, that water given to them, that life-giving drink, as in, for instance, Numbers chapter 20, when water flowed forth from a rock, at this point, might we not see in all of that some reminiscences even for our Christian lives today? And that's going to be the major point that Paul will shortly make. For after all, you and I follow the cloudy pillar of God's direction as well if we are wise. We do not follow our own dictates, our own speculations, our own opinions. We strive to let a thus saith the Lord be our guide and our directing power as well. Didn't Jesus say in John 6 verse 63, speaking about the word that God had revealed, that thy word is spirit and they are life. No wonder the psalmist could say in Psalm 119 verse number 2, Blessed are they that keep His commandments. And of course, as we give thought to the blessedness of keeping those commandments, we notice what's up next. This issue about, of course, the characteristic that they passed through the sea. That sea was representative of that which was difficult, that which required the element of faith. It still required a remarkable truth in terms of faith, didn't it? To walk out into a, a sea with pillars and stories of water on each side of you and have faith that God would maintain that water in its location and would not allow it to come forth upon you. It still is true, isn't it, that we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Isn't it still defined for us in Hebrews 11, 1? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Five verses later in verse number 6 of that same chapter, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What about element 3? They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
You and I are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, in the character of the Father as well as the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 20. And as we, of course, appreciate the power of that baptism, we too are set forth and removed from the bondage of sin, freed up into a life of wholesome service to the God of heaven. Is it any wonder that Paul himself said in Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye ye became the servants of righteousness. It is with that in mind we come to the last two elements. It says, they partook of this spiritual meat. In John chapter 6, verses 51 and following, Jesus Himself said that unless you and I partake of His blood and His body, we too have no life in us. You'll notice He was able to say in that same context, I am the bread of life, John 6, 48. No wonder in regard to Him being the bread of life, we all, if we're again, we are wise, and if we are faithful, must partake of that same spiritual meat. Finally, what about that spiritual drink? On one occasion, Jesus highlighted the truth of that so marvelously. In John the fourth chapter, He Himself entered into conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And as He did so, in verse 14 of that chapter... As a part of that discussion, he said, If you knew who it was that offered you this water, you would in fact be appreciative and you would take again of that water of which you would never thirst again. That water that would well up in you everlasting life. That reminds us a bit about the lesson we studied this morning. But Jesus said He could give that water. Every one of these descriptions of the ancient Jewish nation reminds us of a part of what Christian life today is and should be. You'll notice, though, what quickly comes next. After highlighting so beautifully the nature of these, he says in verse number 4 that that rock of which they drank, that rock, he says, was Christ. We have before us one of the most powerful passages that highlights in proof positive the pre-existent nature of Jesus. His existence just did not just begin when He was born, of course, in that manger there in Bethlehem. Rather, we notice that rock that followed the children of Israel, that rock that provided them with a blessing, that rock of which the cloudy pillar was the manifestation, that was Christ leading them. No wonder then we should appreciate ever so deeply the profound truth about Christ. Starkly, strangely, almost amazingly, In the next verse it says, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. A group of people that had all those blessings that you and I have just listed, this water, this food, baptized in the way that they were, the cloudy pillar to lead them, all of it, and yet God was displeased with them. The point that the inspired writer here makes is they were overthrown in the wilderness. So why was God displeased with them? What had they done? Beginning in the next verse, continuing from verse 6 through verse number 10, we have a listing of some of the things of which they were guilty. And I have taken the liberty of including in brief form those same elements on that slide. They were guilty of lust. 
They were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of fornication. They were guilty of tempting God. And they were guilty of murmuring. All of them are listed in the case before us. And the inspired writer Paul highlighted in no uncertain terms that for these reasons God overthrew them in the wilderness. A people blessed so much, but yet they complained just as much as they were blessed. A people who in fact not only enjoyed the marvelous protection and provision of the God of heaven, they even tempted God according to the inspired writer. That, of course, challenges all of us today to, in profound character, ask those same questions of ourselves. I suppose, again, the temptations for us reverberate so powerfully to the last two. Complaining. Are you and I far too quick to complain when we have it so good, when we are blessed so richly, so abundantly? God has showered us with blessings that lead us to a text like Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Passages like that one challenge us with Philippians 2 verse 14. We're here, we are commanded to do all things without murmurings and disputings. Do you and I fail on that point on occasion? Do we too com quickly turn to complaining and murmuring and whining and moaning? when there are so many, no doubt, in far worse shape than we, whose blessings seemingly in the flesh are far less than ours. Murmuring, it's easy to do, isn't it? When we don't get it all our way, when we want it our way, we can be so quick to complain. But Paul said we ought to think about the children of Israel. They had food and they had drink and they had leadership, but they also complained. God overthrew them in the wilderness because of it. What about that other one listed? Tempting God. The children of Israel tempted God. Do you and I quickly do the same on occasion? We should ever be quick to think about that statement our Savior made in Matthew 4 verse 7. On that occasion Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. If we behave in such a way foolishly, not wisely by any stretch of the imagination, and we think that we can maintain a life in Christ, getting as close to the danger zone as possible. We're just tempting the Lord. On that occasion in which that text is found, the devil had appeared before our, our Savior and said, Cast thyself down from the pinnacle of the temple for, and he quoted from Psalm 92, making note of the fact, He will not let thy foot dash against a stone, else he shall bear thee up. Jesus was quick not to reprimand the devil for quoting Scripture, but He correctly quoted an even better Scripture, taken from Deuteronomy, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is a very dangerous behavior to live in such a way that one tempts the Lord. Trying to claim one's a Christian when really you're not. You know in the character of your own heart that you aren't living as you should, and yet you give the pretense on Wednesdays, on Sundays, such is only a blasphemous temptation of the God of heaven. It is He who, of course, shall judge. You'll notice as we come near the close of that, all of these things, these matters of the Jews and the challenge to you and to me to learn from their mistakes, these are given to us as an example. And I'd invite you to notice the way that's stated in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
Wasn't Paul quick to say, These things happen to them and are recorded for our benefit upon whom the ends of the world are come. To what end, Paul, that you and I might learn from their examples the mistakes that they made? May you and I be wise enough not to commit adultery or fornication, tempting God. May you and I not murmur as they did. It is in light of all that, verse number 12 summarizes it like this. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. The children of Israel were blessed so greatly, but yet of the 603,550 fighting men that left Egypt, only two of them entered Canaan, Joshua and Caleb. Two out of 603,550. That doesn't sound like great overwhelming positive statistics, does it? But yet that's the truth of what happened. Due to their sin, their carcasses were strewn all across the wilderness of sin. Your carcass and mine in a proverbial way too can be so scattered. May again we learn valiant lessons from their mistakes. At that point, beginning in verse 13, we then are told this interesting passage a passage that has no doubt been a source of tremendous blessing and comfort to untold souls throughout the ages. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also provide a way that you may be able to bear it. We have the absolute guarantee of the God of heaven that there will be no temptation to come your way or mine that will be beyond our capability to withstand and overwhelm and overcome it. We should be so thankful for God's promise in that regard. What if Satan were given free reign to attack you and me in any way that he might so choose? Maybe he could by ingenious device approach us with a means whereby we could not overwhelm it. We have the absolute assurance that that will never happen. The temptations that you and I face, though they may appear strong and though they may appear exceedingly harsh and difficult, we can rest assured that by leaning upon the Savior, by leaning upon the power of the Word of God, we can in fact find that way of escape that we are assured does exist. You'll notice he also says, but such as is common to man. Neither you nor I ever face a temptation. But what someone else somewhere has faced something in parallel consideration like it, and in so doing, we also can appreciate that we aren't unique in that regard. Marvelously at that point, we notice the last section in this particular portion of that chapter. As we discuss these examples more thoroughly, we notice this admonition. I'd invite you to notice the language. Verse number 17. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The Corinthian church, as we've already learned, was splintered. There were factions and divisions. There were individuals chasing and following various and sundry individuals. Paul says, don't you realize you are one body and one bread? You should be completely and fully united under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and in so doing, the partaking of the Lord's Supper is emblematic of that unity. All of you partake of the same bread. All of you partake of the same fruit of the vine, if you please. For you're all members of the one body. Jesus only had one physical body in the flesh, and He only purchased one spiritual body, Acts 20, 28. Paul affirmed in Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body. 
the oneness, the uniqueness, the singularity of that body is still a matter of majestic truth, isn't it? That truth is highlighted in the fact these Corinthians misunderstood and they misapplied the marvelous unity of which they should have been a part. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, this chapter then quickly makes an observation of some of the things you and I studied last Sunday evening. Food offered to idols is mentioned yet again. And Paul admonishes them to again appreciate the conscience of the weaker brother. And he closes the chapter with these breathtaking words. Verse number 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that a beautiful anthem? Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, let it be done to the glory of God. And ought not that be a wise admonition for you and for me today? By the things that we say, the places we go, the attributes and behavior that's ours, may it always be, if we're a Christian certainly, to the glory and to the magnitude of the cause of God. That sounds a great deal like those words in Colossians 3.17, does it not? Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. With that kind of close to chapter number 10, it brings before us now the 11th chapter of this 1 Corinthian letter. Two things we'll observe in chapter 11, one of which begins the chapter as I've entitled it, Customs. It is true that the first 16 verses of chapter number 11 have frequently been utilized as points of discussion, points of description, observations that are still worthy of attention even until this day. Verse number 1 of the chapter begins in a magnificent statement. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Paul had the nerve, he had the confidence to assert to the Corinthians that you follow me to the extent that you will witness and observe me following Jesus. Each and every one of us can also say the same, can't we? Urging others to learn from our example of life to the extent we're followers of Jesus. It is with that initial statement made that Paul had some rather harsh words for them as this chapter proceeds. Beginning in verse number 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of, every, uh, head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. And immediately Paul launches into a consideration about coverings of the head, and the propriety or impropriety, as the case may be, about the descriptions on that occasion. Maybe you and I have learned and heard individuals speak about the demand on the part of a passage like this one that a woman have a hat on or that she wear a hat as a part of a certain religious service. By the same token, a man must never wear a hat according to these same individuals, at least in light of a service of the church. Might we ask, is that what Paul taught? If so, what's the thrust and the reasoning behind it? But if that is not what he taught, what is the characteristic of the passage before us? It might well be that the beginning point might be observed as follows.
That jumped two slides. My apologies for that. This section on customs is where we needed to be for, for this section of the lesson at least. As we think about this matter of customs, you'll notice that the language might well begin with a careful consideration of verses 3 and 4. In fact, that's where the whole discussion begins. And again, he says in verse 4, "...that every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head." And the word surrounds the usage of that word cover. What was that word in the original language? And may I say to you, the word cover, quite frankly, is not even in the original language. And that part's a, a bit surprising, isn't it? As Paul has developed this point, and as it has in fact developed throughout the ages, that word that appears as the word cover in your translation, likely in mine, is not a word that appeared in the original language. Rather, you'll notice the word there had reference to something that, hanged, that hangs down. You'll notice then that that would not be descriptive of a hat, period. And furthermore, it would not even be descriptive of modern versions of a, of a Western hat that a lady might wear. It is true in that ancient era that ladies typically were covered in such a way as you and I have witnessed in that part of the world. They wore a veil that covered not just the head but the face and literally all that shone through may well have been one or perhaps both eyes. That's the kind of covering that you and I have often witnessed, isn't it? So might we be quick to say that a western style hat would not even be parallel to an ancient veil in that regard at all. But perhaps it's fair to say that as Paul made reference to this which hangs down, it seems throughout the entire passage he's referring to hair, not a hat or any other such artificial covering to the head. In light of that, might we say that these thoughts then directly follow. There was a statement found throughout this that a man that had then hair too long, in fact, was a disgraceful appearance, wasn't it? Note particularly verse 14, verse 4, as well as verse 7. And so it was to be recognized that a man was not to have hair sufficiently long to confuse his appearance with that of a woman. You'll notice verse number 14 states it like this, "...doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him." And so certainly we need to be well aware as our boys grow up, we need to not let them have hair that is long to be a problematic matter from a passage like this one. God expects a boy to be masculine. He expects him to have characteristics that are dissimilar to those of a woman. And that includes his appearance, and that also would include his hair. You'll notice beyond that, reference throughout this is made to a woman. In particular, you'll notice that a woman with improper length hair was also regarded as inappropriately pre presenting of herself. Notice again the language of verse 5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. In ancient Corinth, it was well recognized as we've noted earlier. There was the well-known temple of Aphrodite that existed just below the southern point of the city. And in that temple, those prostitutes that I mentioned earlier in this series of lessons, they typically wore very fancy short hair, and some of them were even practically shaven. 
these women in the Corinthian church, thus Paul said, you don't want to look like those prostitutes and those women, right? You need to have hair that is sufficiently understood as lengthy enough so that you're not confused in behavior with them and so that your behavior is becoming of Christ. You'll notice again, their behavior was thus not to be on the verge of risky, on the verge of risque, on the verge of behavior that would be unbecoming of an example of a Christian woman. As Paul develops that point, he does make an interesting observation in verse number 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. And in the midst of this discussion, Paul makes reference to the angels and the role that they play in the character of this point. It would seem that in Paul's mind, he takes those hearers to a time that might well be mentioned in the book of Jude. You remember in Jude verses 5 and 6, a statement was made there about angels who left their first estate, who left their own habitation, and due to the pride with which they were encumbered, they fell and were bound in everlasting chains under the judgment of the great day. It would seem that Paul makes reference to that point here and says... If you ladies lift yourself up in pride and you think that you can live like this, bearing in your own presentation behavior like those prostitutes, those harlots, then you too might be overwhelmed in pride and you may well be lost at the last day, never coming to repentance throughout the course of life. It is true in terms of that kind of description. You'll notice that at the bottom of that slide there again is to be a very clear distinction about this presentation on the part of men versus women. May we also say that in verse 16, Paul uses a carefully chosen word to describe this circumstance. He says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So may we say, if a lady prefers to wear a western hat, there's no problem with that. But if she chooses not to do so, there isn't any problem with that either. This is a custom. And so, Paul says, I'm not going to bind where God has not bound. And may we today be wise enough too to not make laws where God hasn't made any, but to understand that a custom is something that should be regarded as such. The last part of our lesson tonight takes up verse 17 and continues through the last part of the chapter. It is that section that I entitled Abuses. So far we have looked at those matters dealing with customs. We've also seen those considerations of examples. Abuses is what is left and it too is not a very pretty picture, is it? In fact, verse 17 says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine an inspired apostle saying, when you come together in assembly, you don't come together for that which is better. You come together for that which is worse. It's almost possible to hear that as saying, given the nature and description of these assemblies, you would almost be better off not to come together at all. Can you believe it? Wouldn't it be sad for a congregation to appear on the day of judgment and God one by one say to the members, it would have been better for you not to have assembled as you claim in my name. You blasphemed my word. You gave no heed and no consideration to that which I taught. You made a mockery of my worship. My friend, that would be a tragedy. 
And yet that's what Paul said to the Corinthians. There were some serious things about their worship that needed fixing. There were some matters considering, considering of their worship that they needed to make repairing of in a hurry. The one before us tonight is the Lord's Supper. They had the gall, the nerve to abuse the Lord's Supper. Let's develop this point somewhat quickly and briefly over the next few moments. But as we do so, to learn again the marvelous matter of the Lord's Supper. It all begins, as you can see here, with the way in which verses 17 through 20 describe it. I'd invite you to read along with me. It says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating every one taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. The Corinthians, as we learn from that passage, turn the Lord's Supper into the following. There's nothing inappropriate about enjoying what you and I would call a fellowship meal. In fact, the book of Jude makes reference to a love feast in which Christians, brethren in the first century era, would do what you and I enjoy as a dinner on the ground. They came together, they enjoyed a common meal, they enjoyed fellowship, communion one with another. But the problem is when you take a common meal and mix it in with the Lord's Supper, you do great disservice to both things. For a common meal has no part in worship and the Lord's Supper has no part in a common meal. That's what they were doing. Paul says they were bringing their own food while one was eating, another one was going hungry, while one was drinking, another had nothing. And they were mixing the Lord's Supper in with the partaking of a common meal. And in so doing, Paul says this ought not to be done. The Lord's Supper should be highly regarded as an incredibly and extraordinarily special set of moments in which individuals recognize the powerful moment of remembrance. Paul said in verse number 24, And when he had given thanks, he, that's Christ, break it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And after the supper also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. This Lord's Supper is not a time to be enjoying peach cobbler and milk. It's not a time to be enjoying Oreos and milk. It's a time to use the unleavened bread as Christ instituted it, the fruit of the vine as He instituted it, and to take it not just as a physical nourishment to the body. In many ways, that's wholly beside the point. It is to be taken in remembrance of the one that died for us. The blood that He shed the body that was so agonizingly mistreated for us. Thus, Paul was quick to say in verse 26, For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. Each Lord's day as we partake of this Lord's Supper, we do publicly make declaration for all the world to see that Jesus did die and that we are His followers. And we shall continue to do that until He returns. Isn't it amazing then in the verses that follow that we have these final descriptions? 
Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my beloved, or wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Even when they did partake of the Lord's Supper, they were to do it together. We should not be partaking of the Lord's Supper. No congregation should, in which some partake of it now, others take of it at a far different time and hour. A part of it is to be done together. Because we are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it amazing then to reflect on those who mispartake of it, bring upon themselves damnation. They bring the very judgment of God. They, in essence, are just as guilty as those who pierced and penetrated the very side of our Savior, as we read in John 19, verse 34. It is with all that in mind that our lesson races to its conclusion. We have looked this evening at examples. We have been reminded of customs, and we have been revisited with truths about abuses. All of those things are still needful for us to understand. As we give thought to this, notice again, they were corrupting the Lord's Supper by mixing it with a common meal. A common meal is perfectly fine when nothing else mistakenly is true about it. You and I appreciate, we here at Pippin from time to time enjoy a common meal behind us back here in the back or out at the rector center. We're not making a claim that those are times of worship. We do make the claim that those are like those love feasts off which we read in the New Testament in times of mutual encouragement and edification of brothers and of sisters in Christ. Tonight as we close this lesson, might we say that there's much we can learn from the Corinthian congregation. Sometimes lessons we can learn about what not to do. Abuses and customs we should never mistake. Tonight, as we analyze and scrutinize our own lives, where do you and I stand before the God of heaven? Those examples of the Jews, may we use them to not murmur, to not tempt God, to not be guilty of lusting and those other things we've studied. Tonight, if you or I find ourselves in a circumstance in which salvation at this point is distant from us, don't allow that situation to continue. Don't allow it to remain. Time is of the essence. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. To quote Proverbs 27.1. This evening, if there would be one or more in this audience subject to the invitation of the Lord, subject in such a way that a public response would be appropriate, I would hope that in urgency you would come forward. We'd be delighted to pray on your behalf if that would be the matter of need. If public sins, you have been previously a member of the body of Christ, but you need that forgiveness of sins known publicly. If, however, you have never been baptized into Jesus, the plan of salvation culminates in that activity. You are commanded to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess His name as the Son of God, and to be baptized. It is in that act of baptism that He will wash your sins away, making you pure and whole and clean. 
Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about that in John 3, 5. Except you, in fact, be born again of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Tonight, if we could assist you in any, either of those ways, don't delay, but come even now, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.